Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody that's been listening and supporting the show. I've got to say that it's been kind of a salvation for me to dig into this show and interviewing my friends, talking about music. It's been a nice escape from the crazy reality that our country is in right now. And, uh, you know, it's become something a lot more than I initially intended. So, you know, if you're, if you're digging the show, share it with your friends. Uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, it would be much, much, much appreciated from my side of things. And there's a few things I'd like to mention uh, in the beginning of this show. You know, there's a lot of uh, crazy changes happening around us. We don't know when we'll get back to normal or even what normal will be, you know, in the coming months, years. We're all going to have to get used to a different reality. Um, Musicians are obviously out of work. Um, Venues are closing. Um, Anyone in the entertainment business or food service business is in trouble right now, um, to say the least. So there's been um, a few organizations that have been created during this time um, to help the venues, the musicians, and um, the restaurants too. Uh, I was listening to Mark Marin's podcast, which I'm I'm a big fan of that podcast. And he spoke to Jeffrey Wright, who is an incredible actor um, I saw him in Westworld. Back in the day, he was Basquiat. And he has been in Brooklyn since the 80s, I believe. And, uh, you know, I lived in Brooklyn for 20 years of my life and have a huge love for the city of New York and especially Brooklyn. But he started an organization called Brooklyn for Life, which is helping support not only the restaurants in Brooklyn, but the frontline workers. It started out as people donating money to for hospitals to be able to order food from some of his favorite restaurants that were experiencing serious problems and looking at bankruptcy and closing. And uh, it now has turned into a way bigger movement. So go check out brooklynforlife.org and donate if you can. Also, I urge you to check out saveourstages.com created by the National Independent Venue Association, which was created to preserve and nurture the ecosystem of independent live music venues and promoters throughout the United States. We do not want to lose these venues. Um, It's our lifeline as musicians to go out and tour and play these shows. We don't make a lot of money making records anymore. You know, records have kind of become a strictly creative art piece that we use to then tour. I mean, all of us love making records and musicians love writing songs, but we don't make a lot of money from streaming. We need these live shows. Also, you know, I urge people to support their artists right now, their favorite artists, whether it's buying their music through Bandcamp or vinyl or merch. Um, We don't want to see less music in this time. We need more music and more art because people have a lot to say right now. There's so much to talk about, and I think... One of the silver linings in a lot of the things going on is that there's conversations happening about race, um, about the environment, about how we treat each other. And music oftentimes is the greatest vehicle um, for these conversations, for people to talk about issues. And my guest on the show today, Mr. Ivan Neville, he knows something about this, making statements in music, 
Um, his band, Dumpster Funk, is one of the greatest funk bands ever, but especially in this time period, we need artists like this. Just like we had Sly and the Family Stone and James Brown and so many people in soul and funk music standing up for their community and speaking their mind and their music. Dumpster Funk absolutely does this. I urge everyone to check out their music and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the show. We also get into some really interesting history about his family. The Neville family is the royalty of the city of New Orleans. We get into New Orleans music, the meters. I mean, he knows more about this than anyone. Um, I've spent so much time in New Orleans. I've spent a lot of time with Neville family. I'm so thankful to be friends with them and kind of part of this community. I had the opportunity to work with Aaron Neville producing the album Apache, which was a huge honor for me being a massive fan of Aaron, of the Neville brothers and a huge fan of the meters. I've gotten to work with George Porter, obviously Ivan, Ian Neville, the Dumps of Funk crew. It's one of my biggest blessings in my life is to be a part of that New Orleans community. And I've been fortunate enough to perform and record with a lot of my heroes growing up. Unfortunately, in the last few years, we've lost a few giants from the New Orleans music community. Dr. John, Alan Toussaint, Charles Neville and Art Neville. And you'll hear us talk quite a bit about Art and Charles in this episode, both of which I consider architects of funk and soul music. So I'd like to dedicate this episode to Art, Charles, Dr. John, and Alan Tucson. Before we get started, I'd like to give a shout out to Osiris Media. They help me put out this podcast and they also create a lot of other great shows and content including a show that's actually just been released called Festival Circuit, which will uh, be a narrative series focusing on the history and impact of festivals and cities around the world. The first season is focused on the music of New Orleans and the annual Jazz Fest, which premiered on July 9th. And that features a lot of my friends that we'll be talking about, Ivan Neville, Irma Thomas, George Porter, Johnny Vodakovich, and many others. So check that out at OsirisPod.com. All right, let's get into it. My guest today is part of the royal family of New Orleans, the Nevilles. He's an incredible singer, songwriter, pianist, organ player, one of the funkiest clavinet players of all time, a part of the Voltron of soul and funk music, Dumpster Funk. Please welcome today's plus one, Mr. Ivan Neville. So what's New Orleans like right now? Seems to be uh, pretty cool, uh, pretty calm. At least a few few restaurants are open. Yeah, you know, uh, with limited capacity, you know that right. kind of thing. I saw a video that showed Bourbon Street like packed on the Fourth of July. Okay, well, I don't, I don't go, I don't go to Bourbon Street, so <laughs> I would never know, and <laughs> that's a damn shame. But yeah. That's, that's, that's bullshit. We shouldn't be doing that. I know, I know. Did you ever have a time where you played on Bourbon Street when you were younger? I did. I played on Bourbon Street back in the day. Yeah. We had a little, I had a, we had a band called the Uptown All-Stars. We had a regular gig on Bourbon Street. This, this, this cool old place, it was called the Old Absinthe Bar. Okay. And that place been around for like many years. Yeah. It was like a historic kind of joint band playing a regular little gig making hardly any money yeah in the french quarter 
this was long. This was a while ago too. This was way back. Yeah, man. I feel like everybody has had some sort of Bourbon Street experience if you grew up in New Orleans playing music. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's kind of like the Times Square in New York. So where exactly, what part of town did you grow up in, in New Orleans? I grew up um, in, in an uptown neighborhood. Um, and, you know, in New Orleans, we have wards. Wards. Right. Yep. Like, you got districts and wards. So I, I grew up in the 13th ward. Right. Most most people, uh, they've heard of the 9th ward in New Orleans because the lower 9th ward was hardest hit by Katrina. So right. that was a big... That was uh, a lot of um, people heard that a lot after Katrina about the lower ninth ward being the hardest hit part of New Orleans. Um, So I'm I'm from the 13th. And as far as your dad and the Neville brothers, what what were they from 13th ward as well? Yeah, my dad, my dad, pretty much grew up in the 13th ward. They had they had previously lived in the Calio project. They were from the Calio projects and then they moved to the 13th ward to, well, to Valance, Valance street, which is where that was the land. I was where all arts house is still, he's still at that house. He was the last of the Mohegans art and yeah. has the house on Valance. Street. Yeah. I've been to that house many That's times. That's the street. Yeah. And, uh, so when 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 they moved out of the projects, was that before they kind of took on, you know, the the Neville brothers' name? Like, were they were they musicians at that point? Were they known, or was the, they, they were they that? were they were uh, they were like uh, Art was the one who was like a real bonafide musician at the time. Right. My dad was was still aspiring, but he was young. He was yeah. They I think when they moved up to the to the thirteenth ward, I think. Uh, they were like junior high school age. My Got dad it. was. I know junior high and high school. Art was the older brother, so he had started doing stuff. Um, they had they, Art had been started singing like when they were in the Calio project, right? And right. they were, you know, he was. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he did. He did uh, Mardi Gras Mambo. You know what? I'm gonna look it up as we speak. I don't know the exact year that that came out. So that would tell me a lot right there. Mardi Gras Mambo was the song that Art did. That was the first the first one that I know of that was like, you know, um, that put any any Neville on the map. And right. Art, had a, he had a group called the Hawkettes. Right, And right. they... Um, they recorded Mardi Gras Mambo, if I'm not mistaken, in the, in the 50s. Yeah. So, um, I, they were, yeah, they were still in the Calio project for that during that time. And that's, it. was that the first recording of that song? Yeah, it's been that's the original version. Right, the original version. The original version. Art right. sang it. And I believe they, I believe they recorded that song at a radio station. Right, Radio, Mardi Gras Mama was sung by the Hawkeyes, and I'm looking up, and it was released in 1954. Wow! So, so how yeah. old was Art then? Art was must have been, geez, let me see, like 16? Six, 16, something yeah. like 16, some 17, 16, yeah, teenage. Right. Crazy. So that means, so my dad and them were 
So uh, my dad must have been 13, 12, 11, 12, 13 years old, wow. something like that. Like, yeah, yeah. And do you yeah. know any of the story of how that song came about? Like, was was Art out? Was he gigging at that point and doing his thing and, and somebody sit, recorded? He had called the Hawkeyes. And some, I think some DJ, a DJ called Somebody the Cat. See, now you got to yeah. be looking it up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and you can do it in this day and age, which is yeah. cool. Um, I'm sure they don't have a whole, I mean, you know. I, I, so, so I forget the cat's name, with Jack the Cat. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I heard all telling the story. And it was recorded at a radio station. Right, right. And it basically was written by Frankie Adams and some other guy, two guys. And one of the icons, yeah, songs played every every year. Yeah. Um, they recruited us, so I'm, I'm just reading it. See, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I had heard <laughs> stories about it, and I knew that Art ended up taking over that band, but it wasn't his band to begin with. Got and it. they recruited Art to sing. Got it. And they were approached, but his cat name, cat name was Jack the Cat. Jack I the was, Cat. I knew it was Jack something. <laughs> That's Jack a good the Cat. DJ name was a DJ and he recorded the song at WWEZ radio station. And they, right. yeah. So yeah, wow. that was the start. That was the, the beginning of a lot of things. I was going to say like people. at that point, then the, you know, I mean, Cyril's a lot younger, right? So Cyril would have been a little kid at this point. Yeah. Cyril was like 11 years older than me. So right. Cyril was probably, six years old or something that was going on. Cyril was yeah. born, I think, in uh, maybe 49, 1949, something right. like that. Right. And yeah, then, so Cyril was probably six, five or six years old or something like that. Right. So Art had a career for a long time before the other the other guys really came, came into music. He right? had been doing stuff. Yeah, he had yeah. been doing some stuff. My dad started, I believe, in the late 50s. Right. You know? Do you remember, what was the first single? What was the first single that, that your dad had? I don't know. I'm thinking I'm thinking it was a song called Over You. Right. I'm gonna guess that. I'm gonna guess that his first song was <laughs> we were sitting here talking and you can look that kind I'm, of stuff. I'm looking up. it up right That's now. Funny. Too. I think it I think over you, my or waiting at the station. Either over you or waiting at the station. Okay, okay. Did you get it? Did you get it? <laughs> nah, well, here, oh, you know, yeah, here it is. Over You was was, was Over released you. in 1960. That's what I'm thinking, yeah, see? 19 what? 1960. 1960. I knew it was somewhere late 50s, something like that. Over You, that's the one. Yeah, and then uh, obviously Tell It Like It Is. And I is, think Over was, You was written by Alan. Right. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, yeah, Tell It Like It Is was in 66. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I know. I knew that much. I didn't have to look that one up. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then how long after that till, I mean, when were the Neville brothers like officially formed? Okay, so what, from my understanding, basically the meters, there, there was a group that Art had, it was called Art Neville and the Neville Sounds. Ah, okay. And okay. that was the meter. That was Art, Zig, George, and Leo. And wow. I believe, okay. I don't believe it was all the brothers... And the meters all at one time. I believe it was my dad sometimes, and I think maybe Charles. So that was potentially, to me, 
and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about a, a recording that was made later on. Right. That 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 made me say, "Wow, that should be the band." And so the Art Neville and the Neville sounds were basically the meters with the brothers. But right. I don't remember them all being like gigging together during those times. Maybe my dad went on a few gigs with them. Maybe Cyril here and there. Maybe Charles played on some stuff with them. Yep. But it, I don't know if it was ever all the brothers and the meters. I'd have to ask George Porter that question. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he would say that it was pretend. It could have been maybe. You know what I'm saying? But I think I don't think the the cards were lined up. I don't think it was lined up. The stars were aligned at yeah. that point. Yeah. For the, the all the brothers and the meters together, because later on, around 1970, 76, 75, 76, they did a record called the Wild Chop Tours. Right, right. 76, 77, somewhere around there, and that that record was um, my great uncle Jolly, George, Big Chief Jolly. Right. George Landry, who was my who was my my grandmother's brother. Okay. The Neville brothers' mom's brother. Got he it. was my great uncle. They did a record with him called the Wild Chopper Tours, and that was the Meters and the Brothers together, wow, and produced crazy. by Alan Toussaint. Yeah. Now, when I, I mean, that a, collaboration a there, that collaboration to me, that was I I thought that was the first. It was the first unofficial Neville brothers record. Yeah. That's the way I looked at that. And when I saw that group together, the meters and the brothers, oh, my thoughts were, why, why can't that be a band? Yeah, yeah. Why can't that be the group, you know? And you were a kid at this time. Like, were you, were you at I was. These... I was a teenager. I was yeah, a teenager. teenager. I was doing that. I was in, I was in high school. I was were 16, you, were 17 years old. Were you making music at that point? I had started playing in yeah. like 75. Okay, so right around. I started playing piano in tenth grade, learned a few songs, and then I had entered the talent show in '76. I had entered the citywide talent show, which I I ended up winning, which was a big yeah. And that's a cool story. As that's a cool story because I had performed, I had played this song, I, I I joined a stage band at my high school. Yeah, right. I joined the stage band. Now I wanted to. I liked playing sports, and I I really loved playing sports. And I was like, with that with that extracurricular thing, what I do, right? And I was kind. I was somewhat lazy, so I'm thinking, okay, um, I wanted to play, be on a football team, yeah. But I was kind of small, but I knew that I I was probably good enough to do it. But I was like, but the time the time I was going to have to. Uh, commit to spending doing stuff like that after school all the time. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna. I, st- I had just started playing the piano a little bit. I'm like, maybe I can get into the stage band. So I, I had a stage band class. It was one of my classes, and I ended up being playing piano. And that, that the, there was a lot of arrangements that the stage band had that didn't incorporate piano, and I just kind of fit in on some songs yeah. like there were we, we played like stomp and buck dance by the 
Crusaders. Oh, yeah. Okay. You up to that song? Yep, yep. Stumpin' Buck. We played Stumpin' Buck Dance by the Crusaders. Yeah. And we played, um, oh, this is this is funny. The fifth, the fifth of Beethoven disco joint. So I had the little keyboard part. And wow, I, you know, I had a, I had to fend the roads, ship uh, uh, luggage to school somehow. Yeah. But I, I ended up being in the stage band. And the first thing I really did, step out, stand out performance was the stage band had an assembly during like uh, like at before school let out. There was an assembly right before Mardi Gras one year, um, and it was, I think it was. Um, Maybe was it my 10th grade year or was it my 11th grade? I'm not sure. I think I was in 11th grade. And I played, we played Big Chief. And I played the piano intro, Big Chief. Yeah, and that was like a big deal. Yeah, like yeah, everybody, yeah. All, of, all of the thugs and <laughs> all of the girls, you know, everybody was cheering on and they were cheering me on like oh red playing that piano blah blah <laughs> they, you know you know they out, out there a lot of people called me red called called me red back then right okay because i was kind of brown you know lights yeah. a light lighter skin lighter brown skin cat and um red play that piano so that was like a big deal and i i, I ended up playing a getting another feature song at a nighttime assembly that the stage band put together. And our, our, our teacher was, was Mr. Francis. And he used to let me sit. There was a little piano room yeah. that I would sit in this little room and be playing, just making up stuff and learning songs on my own. And he had these other guys were reading music and stuff. I wasn't like reading music. I was just in the little piano room making up, playing whatever I wanted. And then when it was time for me to join with the stage band, he'd give me certain songs that I had to play. And I learned them by ear on the radio. Yeah, you know, listen to the radio and learn songs, and then I'd be playing with the stage. So we we played one um, assembly, a, a nighttime assembly, and right. I played all about love by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Wow! And so that was a big deal. And then the response. So had that, you been singing, uh, growing up singing, or, or I like- I kind of knew that I had I had somewhat of a. a decent voice right and stuff like that did did how where did where did your dad play into that was your dad like putting like you know was he encouraging you musically he didn't he didn't exactly encourage me hardcore but one time when i was really young when i was maybe eight years old or something and this this man this guy and i always i had a voice i had a i could sing a little bit yeah and it was kind of, okay, he's got a singing voice. He could sing. But I didn't, you know, it wasn't like, okay, this kid's a phenom or something. No. But, yeah, I could sing. One time, this guy, as a matter of fact, this guy, I ended up graduating high school with this kid. This kid named Ed, Edward. Edward's dad was a bus driver, and he was a friend of my dad's. And he came over to our house to bring his son by to show my dad, listen, my son can sing. Check him out. And my dad was known, you know, Aaron Neville, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And this, I'm talking about, this is like in the late 60s. He had already, tell like it is, was, yeah. it was a hit yeah. in 66. And this was maybe a couple years after that. 
And my dad was, in, you know, he was just doing like odd jobs and stuff. He didn't make any money yeah. on that big, that big hit record. Yeah, yeah. But this guy brought brought his son over to try to impress Elvin Neville, and my son can sing. Yeah. So he had his son. My dad, they put on the record, tell it like it is, and he had his son sing along with the record. Uh, you know, okay. <laughs> and he had the moves. And I remember Edward. Yeah. He, Edward was, the, you know, what Edward Edward's last last the gigs that I knew. He, he he was singing with Alan Toussaint's uh, last band that he had. Oh, okay. Edward Roussel was his name. Yeah, yeah. Edward Roussel, he, he's, he's, he, I mean, I don't know where he is now, but he, I put he I he performed with with an, uh, for the Alan Toussaint tribute last year at Jasper. That's a funny full yeah. circle kind right, of thing. Wow. But Edward's dad brought him to our house, and he sang. He checked my son out, and he, we were the same age. Right. And so then my dad said, "Hey, Ivan, come here," and he said. So my dad had me sing it too. Oh yeah. So we kind of had a little sing off. <laughs> he had me sing. Too. That's funny. <laughs> I was kind of shy and scared, right? Yeah, yeah. But I did it. I did it. But that was as far as my dad went, as yeah, far as yeah. pushing me to do something like that. Right. And he never, he never egged me on, except later on when I was about in tenth grade, something like that. He 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 showed me a couple of. I mean, he played piano a little bit, and he showed yeah. me a couple of songs on the piano. And he showed me how to play Cabbage Alley. Right, right. And a couple of other little Such a Night by Dr. John. Yeah. He kind of knew a little bit. And he showed me that stuff. And that's kind of what got me started, you know? Yeah. And when, so when the Neville Brothers, like, were, when did they become, like, the Jazz Fest, like, staple, close out the Jazz Fest? <laughs> um, that was that was at the 80s or late 70s? I, you know what? I, I'm not. I'm not sure exactly when that started. I know that I performed my first time at the Jazz Fest with the brothers, but it was was it was as the, the group. The name of the group was the Wild Chopper Tours. Oh, okay. So yeah, now and it was in 19. This was in 77. Right. Right. So if you ever see a photo of my, me and Uncle Cyril and my dad on singing on the same mic together, you hip to Michael Smith. Michael Smith was this photographer that take, was taking a lot of um. He, he took a lot of iconic photos from back from New Orleans. Yeah, from Jazz um, Fest. Historic, historic photos from Jazz Fest and a lot. You know the photo of Stevie and Ella Fitzgerald. Yes, yes. That's yeah. taken by Michael he took Smith. That. Okay. There's also a photo of I think Stevie on drums with the meters. Yes, that's a classic. That was yeah. that's yeah. Michael Smith. Well, there's a photo of Young Ivan. And Aaron and Cyril singing on the same microphone together. Right. That's a Mike Smith photo. Yeah. Um, and that was my first time performing at the Jazz Fest, 1977. I was graduating high school that year, and I went and sang with them, singing Wild Chopper Tools songs. And when did that, when did they become, even though I know they had a lot of different no. names, when did it become the Meters? No, you mean the you mean the meters? The meters, yeah. Okay, because they, they okay. Well, that was before the Neville Brothers, right? As right. Far, yeah. Okay, so we're gonna go back a little bit. Yeah. So around nineteen, okay, around some somewhere in the in the mid sixties, mid sixties, uh, when the brothers Art Neville and the Neville Sound. Yeah. At some point, that turned into just the meters. Right. And they had gotten a gig that called for only the four guys. Yeah. Which was the which was Zig, George, 
Art and Leo. And they got a gig in the French Quarter. Speaking of the French Quarter, they got a gig at a club called the Ivanhoe. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which was in the quarters. And from what I understand, um, that maybe this gig called for four pieces. The, the money was paying <laughs> money, for yeah. four pieces. Yeah, yeah. And there was a regular gig. Yeah. So I think they honed a lot of that stuff playing at the Ivanhoe between doing that that gig and doing sessions for Alan Toussaint right. productions and whatnot on a lot of stuff, a lot of New Orleans classic records. That was that's how the meters um became the meters. Right, right. And the you know and then they started Alan really was the one that uh, inspired or kind of got them making their own records. Is that is my correct by saying that? I mean, I know he he brought them in to back up, you know, all sorts of different artists. Yeah. But those yeah. original meters recordings were those, you know, produced by Alan. Uh, they were produced by Alan. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, crazy. the sit- sophisticated sissy and sissy yeah. strut and all of that stuff. Yeah. That early stuff. And, and then chicken was a, strut, was a, yeah, sissy strut huh? was a hit, right? That was their sissy first strut was a, was a soul it made the soul charts and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. it was like a hit. And, it was a hit, and there um, wasn't a lot of instrumental hits at that time. Right? No, it was the only other stuff was like Booker T, Booker T stuff. Right, right, that's right. That's the, the right. Green onions and all that shit. So they were contemporaries of Booker T and the MGs. Right, the meters were so they were kind of similar in that in that vein. Yeah, yeah, you know, they were instrumental uh, uh, band uh, for the most part. And, and so, were you when you were like, uh, you know, performing at school and all that? Did did your like friends at school or your contemporaries know that about your family? Like, how how famous were the Nevilles at that point? They weren't. No, the Nevilles weren't really. People knew. Some people knew that my dad made that record. Tell it like it is. Yeah. But that was like in the '60s. Right. So we we were all of my contemporary, all of my peers. We were like seven years old or something when that yeah. song was out. Yeah, so yeah, we yeah. knew that. But my dad wasn't like he didn't go on to be some big famous guy yeah. right there after that. Right. He kind of his his level of success and fame kind of died down a little bit. Yeah. And he was just a regular regular dude not regular <laughs> not, he was never a regular dude but he yeah. was just another guy trying to hustle and make it you know and he sang at some clubs he yeah. had some gigs at this place called the desert sands it was a club he performed at okay uh, at some points when i was a kid and when i when i got to the high school era area he was he was he was on the com- he was on the comeback yeah. And when the, the brothers did the Wild Chopper Tudors records, that was kind of when they got back together as the four brothers. Right. When they got back together to do that project, which unfortunately they all got back together because my grandmother had died. Right. Prior to that. And Charles had been living in New York. He had been in New York for many years and he was a he was Charles was a victim of being stereotyped and being um you know um ha- harassed right. by the po- by the police department. Wow. Yeah, that was um you know racial racial stereotyping back then. 
he had served five years in penitentiary in what? Angola so, State oh, Penitentiary in Louisiana. Angola right. State Penitentiary oh, yeah. for two joints. Wow. Two skinny marijuana joints. That is insane. But obviously, he, you know, he maybe had a slight rap sheet, maybe yeah, a yeah. little bit. And he had done some other little, you know, criminal activity, participated in some criminal activity here and there. But he did five years in the wow. penitentiary for two joints. So That's when he crazy. got out of the penitentiary, he, um, he was harassed. From what I understand, he was harassed a lot by the police. Like every time they would see him, they would, you know, they would mess with him. They would wanted yeah. to treat him as what they would treat a career criminal. Yeah. And so they... He was typecast in that in that light, and so he moved to New York. He got the hell out of New Orleans. Right, right. Did New, was, was South, New York was New York better? <laughs> you know, well, I, yeah, it was, uh, wasn't the South. Yeah. It wasn't the South. Yeah. I mean, New Orleans is New Orleans, but New Orleans is the South, you know. So when you, live, I mean, especially back in those days, you know, I mean, and, and, and as a matter of fact, this is an interesting uh, fact. The first time I really remember seeing my uncle Charles, I had he had he had babysat me a couple times when I was little and whatnot. But the first real vivid memory I have of my uncle Charles was when my grandfather died, um, my dad's dad, and at his funeral, Charles um, was incarcerated, and they they allowed him to come home from the penitentiary just to attend his father's funeral. So he was with, like, sheriffs with a suit on, with his coat on, but with handcuffs. So that was the first vivid memory I have of Charles, was that. And so, and he, so he spent, how long was he up in New York? He was, he was here after, pretty much, he was in New Orleans for a bit, and then he went to New York. I don't remember exactly, I don't know exactly when, but at some point, Charles moved to New York. And when he came to avoid, back, right, right. He came. He came back when my grandmother died. Okay. When and my then, grandmother died, then the four brothers were back really together for the first time. Yeah. To do that wild chopper tourist project with my grandmother's brother, my yeah. great uncle, Big Chief Charlie George Landry. Yeah, yeah. Right after, not long after that, the meters were right at. They were right at the what I thought was the pinnacle of their. They were kind of ready to break. Yeah. They were ready to break break into the mainstream. They had put out the record. I think it was New Directions was the album. Yeah, yeah. Around seventy six or seventy seven, somewhere around there. Yeah. And they had that they, that record had the song "Be My Lady," which was a yeah. which was a somewhat of a, a a hit on black radio stations. Yeah, and and they were they were I think they were um, I thought they were about to to hit a bigger audience that they had that they had not seen up to that point. Yeah, and so yeah, New Directions was seventy seven. So oh wow, exactly. so, so Rejuvenation was seventy four. Seventy four. You did not okay. know that. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. seventy four. Right, right. Crazy, crazy. So at that. They point, had, they had two other records in be, in between Rejuvenation and New Direction. They yeah. had Fire on the Bayou and Trick Bag. And Trick Bag, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so they were they were recording a lot during that time, but they weren't really touring outside of New Orleans yet. Well, Cyril, no, well, Cyril had joined the band around '75. Yeah, yeah. And he was on. He was big, a big part of. Um, yeah, he was on Trick Bag. He was a member of the Meters in uh, Fire on the Bayou and Trick Bag, yep. where they did the tours with the Stones. Yep. In '75, '76. And how did that come about? Were the Stones just a fan of the band? I believe that that's kind of how that happened. I mean, yeah. I don't, I'm not, I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming that's what you know. The Stones they didn't need; they could put whoever they wanted to open up for them. Yeah. yeah. So why not put a cool hip band that that's underappreciated? You know, the Meters. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors. Around 1980-ish, 81, the Nevilles opened up for the Stones, and I was I was in the band during that time. And was that new? Were you new in, in the band? No, I I had been with the I had gotten I had gotten with the band maybe 79. Okay, I started performing with the brothers. Maybe no 78. 78, I started doing stuff with the brothers. And that was I had, you and Art playing keys. Art, me, Art, and Joe Tillman. All three. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Wow. That was the three of us. I was mostly be playing clap and stuff. Right, right. As a matter of fact, you know what? The first tour I the first tour I did with them, I didn't play that much. I was I would I would come on stage toward the end of the set as part of the Wild Chop tours. Got it. Got and it. I put on the Indians Indians costume. Yeah, yeah. Along with my great uncle, Big Chief Charlie. Yeah. And I may maybe maybe Charles would come back and put on some stuff. Yeah, and we yeah. would come out as the Wild Chopper tours. And were you, did and you did you grow up with that? And did you grow up like like you know dressing up and 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 I never so, masked as Indian. No, I never yeah. did that. But, but I I did it on stage. I did it yeah, on stage, yeah. but I never okay. did it in the street. No, got but it, I would go it, and follow them. Right, right. I would go and follow the Indians and march with them. And, Second line with the, with the Indians and whatnot. But your, yeah. your uncle, obviously, he was a he was a chief. Bitchy Johnny yeah. was was a respected uh, cat in in, it, in the Mardi Gras Indian world. Yes, got it. I mean, there's like there's like three big chiefs that you people know really know about in the world of of Indian folklore. They know about Big Chief Bo Dallas. Yep. Big Chief Tootie Montana. Okay. And Big Chief Jolly. Those are the three that that are known. Yeah, yeah. That every everybody knows most those three big chiefs. Those are the chiefs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um yeah, you you you'd have to be living under underneath a rock somewhere if you hadn't heard of Big Chief Paul Dollars. Yeah. Or and, Big and, Chief Two in Montana. His son, you know, too, right? Dollars Oh, yeah, oh well his son is it's t- is, is, yeah, he's taken in um carried the torch for, right, for both. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um But back to the Neville Brothers tours. So you started out in eighty one or or, or, or previous no, to that. But I started out in seventy eight. I started out in seventy eight. Seventy eight, but eighty one was the was the Stones tour. Eighty one we opened up for the Rolling Stones. Yeah, yeah. We did three dates with the Stones. We did uh date in Chicago, 
at the Rosemont Horizon. Okay. Louisville, Kentucky. I forget the, the venue there. Wherever the college team played basketball, probably. <laughs> right, right, right. Because I think Rosemont Horizon was where DePaul played basketball. I remember hearing that. I remember, oh, that's where DePaul plays ball. And um, Louisville, Kentucky, and then New Orleans in the Superdome. Uh, we opened up. We opened up for the dome, which is another little bit of trivia. Yeah. Which I'm. I'm probably. I'm. I am. I. I. I am the only person to open up for the Stones twice in the Superdome in New Orleans. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. In 1981 with the brothers, and in 20 2019 with the dumps right? with dumps Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. So that's, that's a, crazy. Yeah. That's a long time in between gigs, you know. Yeah, like, that's funny. But uh, yeah. so at that point, did you develop? Was that where you met Keith in the early eighties? On that, that's when I met. That's okay. when I met those guys. Now we we ended up going to um to New York in eighty one to to do some talking and playing with Keith Keith and Ronnie. Got it. There was there was talk of the Neville brothers, uh, maybe being on Rolling Stone Records on uh, their label. Okay. Okay. Which I found out that there were, it was really just an imprint. It was an imprint, and I believe I don't I, who were they with? Were they with Atlantic or something back then? And it, Rolling Stones record was just an imprint. It wasn't like a true record label on its own. But they did their recordings was on Rolling Stones records. Um, and we went to um to Electric Ladyland Studios. And did some playing, fooling around with Keith and Ron, Ronnie, and um, that was where I really met them and got acquainted. I had I had met them before on the, when we did those opening dates, but I didn't get to really spend any time with them. You know, just kind of in passing in the dressing room a couple times. Oh, this is Keith, blah blah blah. And they, these Keith was a, was a fan of the, of the brothers. He's a fan, big Aaron Neville fan. Um, loved with the you know the family. I mean, they were all new. All they loved all of that stuff. They loved Fats Domino. They loved what New Orleans represented. What New Orleans contributed to the world of music. So you couldn't help but you know if you like any of that. If you if you were playing some rock and roll music, you were a fan of New Orleans music. Little Richard, Larry Williams, Fats Domino. You know, I mean that's that was rock and roll right there. So, so between all of that stuff and, and, and me and the brothers, the connection was made. And then I, I ended up getting a call later on. I ended up being in New York um, post. I had been playing with Bonnie Raitt. Fast forward to in the mid-80s somewhere. And I was on tour. I had been touring with Bonnie and... I was slated to sign a deal possibly with Island Records at the time, which I never did. I didn't sign with Island Records. I was going to, I ended up signing up, signing with Poly, Polydor or Polygram or whatever, whatever they, they're called. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then, Wait, yeah, so that, but that album didn't, your album came out. See, now I'm like trying to get all the time. Wait, right. wait. So, so let me go. Let me get the timeline. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, so yeah. now, so I, so the brothers, <laughs> I had, I left the brothers. 
kind of right after that Stone stuff, a little while after that, yeah. around 80, 82, I, I ended up moving to, to Los Angeles. Ah, okay. Now, I had, I had gone to Los Angeles before that and done some stuff with this group called Rufus. Yep. Oh, yeah. Rufus is the band that, you know, Shaka Shaka. Khan's. Yep. Rufus is Shaka Khan. Yep. But I did a project with them that was, was, was without Shaka. It was just with the band Rufus. And I did a recording with them, a record called Seal and Red. Okay. Um, and so it was somewhere around there. I did some stuff with them. And that got me connected in L.A. a little bit. I ended up playing with Bonnie Raitt um, through another a friend of mine, Hutch, Hutch Hutchinson, who had been, who was a, a Neville Brothers alumni, who had played bass for the Brothers. He had a couple of tenures with the Brothers playing bass. Um, and he had moved to California and he had been, he had started playing with Bonnie. Wow, like so he's 80. been with Bonnie a long time, right? He started playing with her in 83. Wow, okay. I joined, I started playing with her in 84. 84, 85, 86, I played with Bonnie. Somewhere around up in there. And I know in 86, you ended up recording with the Stones. On the Dirty, dirty Work. work. Dirty Work. Dirty Work. work. That yeah. was right after finishing a Bonnie tour, which I think I may, I, I met, that may have been toward the end of my, my, my tenure with Bonnie. Yeah, yeah. I ended up... Um, in New York, a friend, Rob Faboni, oh, oh, Faboni was hanging around yeah. and Faboni knew that the Stones were in the studio playing, recording. And he said, hell yeah. So I went to the studio where they were. Maybe it was Right Track, Right Track Studio oh, yeah. or RPM. Yeah. I remember Right Track. RPM Studios. We went to, and, and they were recording and I ended up going, um, hanging out. And I ended up singing some backup songs, some songs and stuff. Yeah. And I ended up playing bass on a song. Yeah, so that was on that one. Okay, that was on. I'm on work. bass on a song called "Hold Back." Yes, okay. on that Dirty Work album. Okay. And that was yeah, that was some fun stuff, man. That was fun times. Uh, yeah, that was. Oh my god, that was fun. Yeah, uh, you got any? You got any? <laughs> Good stone story. I do. I got. I got a good story for that. But so those, those sessions were, it, dude. Those sessions were. Ooh. Yeah. Oh my god, it was something else. That was some stuff in uh, the heyday too. That was. Oh my lord! Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to get into particulars, boy. But there was some shit going on. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was like I remember this. I can the lot in in like the little hang area of the studio. Yeah. There were like some people like hanging out, and there was like this fan. It was like this guy, <laughs> this guy. But he was just, he was he was he was a brother. He was a brother. He was a black guy, big ball. You know, he kind of reminded me. He looked like you know Marcellus Wallace yeah, from fucking yeah. Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah, it was a guy that yeah. kind of reminded me of that guy. Yeah, big ball, black dude, and he had. I think he was like with about four or five people. I think it was his family. I don't know if it was his brothers and sisters, his wife. I don't know. They were all sitting like at his booth. And it was a mound of, you know, yeah. we know it's the eighties. Yeah, what we were doing, yeah, dude. I have, I was like, what the hell? There was like some shit like that going on. There was like a bunch of coke. It was like the hang was just amazing. Yeah, but it wasn't. Right. You know, it was like it was a, it was about the music. But right. The, right. the coke was like a tool. You know, some blow yeah. around was like a tool. Yeah, something to enhance your. 
enhance it, you know? And also just keep it going. All, you know. Keep it going, keep yeah. it going up a little while longer and, and, and like I say, enhance the enhancement. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, oh my God. So it was some fun times. I ended up playing bass on this song, dude. I, I was like, the funny part about that was I I went to Ron, I went to Ron, Ron Wood's house that evening. Yeah. His, the night before, we were hanging we were at the studio, we were singing, and, and Ron said, hey, man, come come to my, my son Tyrone's having a birthday party tomorrow. Come by. A bunch of people are going to be over there. Yeah. So I went over to, to, to Ron. Ron was, was living in here, uh, badass brownstone in New York. Yeah. I forget I forget what it was. It's in the 70s. 70s, 100, somewhere in the 70s, uh, yeah. 72nd Street, maybe. I don't, somewhere around there. Anyway, we go to Ron's house. And Keith's in Ron's basement, and I go down, and, and it's me, Ron, and Keith in, in in the basement playing. And that idea came about of me possibly playing bass on this one song. So Keith, on one of them, had said, "Oh man, maybe I should play play a tri bass track on that tune." Blah blah blah. blah. Oh yeah, yeah. I, and I thought nothing of it, and then so then they were going to go to another session first. They were going Don Covey. Are you hip to Don Covey? Uh-uh. Don Covey is the guy that wrote Chain of Fools. Chain, oh, chain, okay. chain. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote that. Yeah. He also had a song called Mercy. Mercy, Mercy. Oh, yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a classic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he, if you listen to his voice, I'm I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna just say this. Mick, Mick, some of Mick's stylings, I would I would be willing to bet that he liked the way Don Covey sings a little right. bit. Right. If you listen to Don Covey and hear some of his phrasings and shit, you would say, damn, Mick's kind of got a little Don Covey thing going. Okay. So Don, so Keith and Ryan were going over to a session to um, work on some Don Covey stuff. Right. Don Covey and Bobby Womack have been working on some music together. Ah, uh, okay. So I went over to the studio with these guys working on this stuff. And... And so, yeah, and, and this, this this was a studio called Giant Studios. Okay. And in the office of Giant Studios, there was some whole other shit going on in this studio. Yeah, yeah. There was some serious shit going on in his office. Yeah. Like, I'm talking about probably more glow, more coke than I have ever seen in my fucking life up to that point. <laughs> yeah. Sitting on the desk in yeah. this office. Like, what the fuck is going on there? And so I'm in, I'm in there to, to talking to some people and just doing some sniffs and Keith and Ronnie are in the, in the, in the recording uh, part of the studio, you know, recording on Don Covey's music and whatnot. And I'm in there, you know, doing what I was doing. And then uh, I see uh, Ronnie's uh, comes to the door of the office where I'm at. He says, hey, I, we leave. We're going to, you know, going to us. Now they're going to the Stones recording session from right. this other recording studio. Yeah, yeah. So then I hop, I jump up and I follow them out the door. We go to the studio where the Stones are working at. And that's where we're playing it, playing some stuff. I think we all ended up singing. Charlie Drayton's over there. Steve Jordan's over there. Yeah. We're all hanging. Steve Lillywhite is producing. Mick's there. This was one night where all of those guys were there. Mick, Ronnie, Keith were all there. Uh, Charlie Watts wasn't on the scene at that wasn't on that particular session. He wasn't around. He and had what, done his tracks. So they did. Did they have? Was Bill Wyman in the mix still at that point, or or no? Bill Wyman had played on some stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. But 
But at this point, they were like in the stages of overdubbing on the record and putting finishing touches here and there. So, but Mick, Keith, Ronnie, and Charlie Drayton, Steve Jordan, we were all hanging out. And um, and I ended at some point we ended up we were singing. Don Covey was there, and I believe someone else with their Patty, Mrs. Mrs. Bruce Springsteen, sings her ass off. She can sing her ass off. I knew her as Patty, who sings with Bruce Springsteen back then, because she wasn't yet married to him. So all of us were singing backgrounds on some shit, on some stone shit, singing on some tunes, a couple of things. We all sing, standing around the mic singing. And it was a cool thing, man. Wow. Um, and then at some point, this track, they pulled this, they pulled this track out, put it up, and they started playing. And they said, oh, that's the track. I was told to, hey, grab a bass and, you know. Yeah, yeah. See if you can groove to this or whatever, you know. I'm like, shit, hell yeah, I'll try. Yeah, hell yeah. Wow. So I go out and I'm fucking playing bass on this tune. I'm busting that shit. And I'm watching them dudes. I'm watching them dudes in the control room fucking dancing and shit. This track's going, boom, boom, And that was that was that was the groove. Yeah, it was badass, man. And oh, I was I like so stoked. I was so st- and no, you know, and we know what's the cool thing about the track is Ronnie played bass on it. It's either Ronnie or Keith. I believe it was maybe it was Ronnie. And they splice. Ronnie's bass plays most of this, the first couple of verses. Okay. And at some point, the the bass changes. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's a thump. It's a you oh, can yeah, tell yeah, yeah, somebody's yeah. thumping. It goes from, <laughs> from a bass playing with a play with a pick. Yeah. To this, to, yeah. Yeah. to that, and that's me. So the song's called "Hold Back on yeah. Dirty Work." Oh, I'm Check gonna play it. Out. I'm gonna play it at the end of the episode. I, I I do a whole I do a playlist that plays all the different stuff we've been talking about. Yeah, about check it out. Yeah. Here. So the uh, second half of the song is me thumping. Wow, man. I do like one little pop, some shit like that. Yeah, it's badass. So I, man, I was I was so pumped after that session. Like yeah. I'm, I'm walking out of the studio at like nine, ten in the morning. Fucking yeah. sun's up. I'm fucking lit out of yeah. my mind. You know, <laughs> I'm like, oh, what do, what do I do? What do I do with myself right now? I can't go to sleep. Yeah, you yeah. know. That's I'm crazy. like, what the hell, man? Yeah, yeah. So, and then that evolved into, you know, the group. Yeah, the the expensive the wine oaks. That evolved into Keith. I mean, a couple, two, three years later. I get a call and I was working by the, I, I was about to start working on my solo record. Right. And I got a call that Keith's putting together some stuff to do, to do some, to do a, a solo project. And I was one of the people that he wanted to, to play with. So I went and, and this is a funny story. I went to New York to go and play with, uh, with Keith, uh, uh, Wadi Wattel, Charlie Drayton, and Steve Jordan. And we we go out. For, I think it was Studio Eight Hundred, Eight Hundred or Nine Hundred. Maybe was it Nine Hundred or Eight Hundred? Studio Nine Nine Hundred Broadway. Okay. It was it was it was a it was a fun place. I tell you, yeah. yeah. This 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 place was so hilariously fun because of the people that were there. All right. Yeah. And the hours that we were working is some of the funniest shit I had ever experienced in my life. We. Started out the first night. I remember showing up at the studio, and we were just playing. We were just going to play together for like a week, 
five, six days. We were going to get together every night and just play. And Steve and, Steve and Keith had some ideas for some songs. They had, I think they had the ideas for maybe Take It So Hard, maybe a couple other things that we were fooling along with. And we, um, we showed up in studio like in the evening time, like right around dinner time, maybe seven o'clock, six, seven o'clock. So you basically go get your, go get you some food, man. I'll show up in the studio and, and see what happens. Maybe we're going to eat. At any rate, we show up in the studio maybe seven o'clock right. in the evening time, seven, eight o'clock. Yeah. And then we play, we play all night. Yeah. And then we leave the studio at like seven, seven, eight in the morning, something like that, maybe. Wow. That's so it's usually daylight. It was usually daylight when we leave in the studio. We're in there all night. Yeah. We leave the studio and we would we would walk. We would we, we, we did we walk? I think we walked. Sometimes we would fucking walk to Keith's house. I'm not sure. Maybe not. Maybe it wasn't that close to Keith's, but I remember at least once or twice walking. Yeah. From fucking Keith's place to the um to the to or from the studio. Right. So we go to Keith's house and he he make he made some some food. Yeah. And I remember him making something that was called bangers and mash. Oh yeah. Bangers yeah. and mash. That was some English kind of potatoes yeah. with the sausage. Yeah, yeah. And he made scrambled some eggs. Yeah. We had bangers and mash. And we'd eat that. I'm talking seven in the morning, eight in the morning. Yeah. We've been in the studio all night. And you know what we were doing yeah. to be in there all night like yeah. that. We would, you know. And then we would leave Keith's house. Now we knew we weren't going to the studio any earlier than we had gone that previous night. Right. So the next night was probably going to start a little later than we started the previous night. Right. So we got progressively later and later. Every fucking night got later and later. So this next night, we're going to start about 10 o'clock, right? About 10. And then the next thing you know, with a couple of nights later, we started at 11, 12 midnight. Right. It got later and later, the start time, because we would be we would be in there longer. And instead of getting out of there at 8 in the morning, we're getting out of there at 10 in the morning. Yeah. We're yeah. getting out of there. I'm finding myself going to my hotel at noon. Yeah. Laying there with my eyes wide open, trying to lay down in the bed. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when are we going to start? <laughs> So every night got later and later. I, I, I got to tell you that I remember one night we showed up in there and I, I, I swear to God, I'm, I think it was maybe one in the fucking morning. I think it was one. It's no, no earlier than one in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And we, that's this, we were starting. This was going to be the start time. One at two in the morning. And we, I think we all just looked at each other and looked and was like, it just bust out laughing so hard. Yeah. That look at what time it is. Look what time we started. And we started, we played, you know. But that became the band. That became the band, the Winos, along with Bobby Keys. Right. Um, did the tour, did the tour. We uh, ended up, we went to Canada at some point and made a record at Lake Studio. Yeah. And I think in Montreal, Lake Studio, we recorded. We stayed, it was, it was a, one of those studios where you, you know, you got there's a house, big house on the property, and you stay there and you go record all day and all night or whatnot, and then you 
that kind of thing. So that's the first Rhinos record that I was a part of. And they did other recordings. We had Bernie, Bernie Worrell played on some of that stuff. Right, right. And Bootsy, Maceo, Buckwheat, Buckwheat Zydeco played on some stuff. Really? Um, and that, that was the first uh, Keith uh, solo record called Talk is Cheap. Were you guys writing together as a group? It was kind of like, you felt like maybe you were contributing in some way, but most of the most of the ideas were mostly written by Keith and Steve. Yeah, kind of like similar to how Keith wrote a lot of stuff with the Stones, where he would start off stuff with Charlie Watts. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those songs started off with Keith and the drums, with a riff, a riff and the drums. So a lot of the Wino stuff was Keith and Steve. I didn't I didn't participate in writing any of the words or any of that stuff. I would help color stuff here and there. And I, I would help maybe come up with a few things that maybe was signature to the song. But for the most part, those songs were written by Keith and Steve. And there, there was two records, right? So there was a, another one. Two records. We're going to make it a, yeah. Main Offender. Main yeah. Offender was the second record. Did you guys tour behind that one too? We toured behind both of those, both of those records. And you, and how did that, because you had just, you made an album, your solo album in 88. Or that came out in '88. Right, right. It came out the same year as, as Talking Sheep came out. So you, so when Keith did the first tour, those, right? I opened yeah. up. Yeah, I yeah, opened yeah. up some of those dates, and then I, I, I would, I would try to be as legit as I possibly could for my set. Yeah. And go do my little opening set and try to crush, you know. Yeah. And then was were you share was was Steve and uh and uh and Charlie playing with you? In your band too, or was it no? I had my no. I had my own band. I had Nick, Nick Daniels, and Val McCallum. Nick and Val McCallum and Kevin Walsh and Mike Barsamanto. That was the band. It was Ah. called the Room. Ivan Neville in the Room. Ah, okay. The Room, and we would we would go and play and play our little set, and then I would leave and go on up to the Wino's dressing room. Yeah, and commence to being a Wino. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, and, and which Nick, was a fun time. So Nick, was Nick's a fun been, time. So Nick's been in the in your orbit for a long time. Nick Daniels in the mix. Yeah, 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 yeah. When Nick was when we when I first went to California in the early eighties, Nick was part of that first little excursion. He came out to to LA. He went out to LA as well from New Orleans. Okay, and he lived out here. So we were. He literally, yeah, we were partners in crime for some years in the early years of LA. We'll be right back after this short break. I met you probably what ninety nine. Ninety nine. I was playing with Robin Ford. With Robin Ford, yeah. And Soul Live was was on that tour, and that's where we first linked up. And, it was ninety nine because I had I had been I had been clean for about a year right. at that point. Right, right. And yeah, that was that was a big deal for me to be out playing and playing with Robin Ford too. Robin had some he had some songs and he had some tunes that were a little bit. Yeah, some jazzy tunes that were a little bit jazzy for me. Right, you know right. what I'm saying? Well, my that wasn't like my expertise. Yeah, but right. I, you know, I, I, I mean, I love his his playing and his music. But there was some stuff that I had to dig deep 
Yeah. To, 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 to hang with him, you know, to, to uh, yeah, keep I up with, with him. I remember you killing it. Like, we were watching you. I remember we, and that, we kind of all ended up riding together a lot and hanging with the Soul Live crew and, and you yeah. during that tour because we didn't know nobody, we yeah. didn't really know about anybody. Um, but in the years between that, like you said, you know, getting sober and w- w- what was that like to go out on tour av- after having, t- you know, fought that and committed to that? I mean, that must have been a crazy time. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a struggle. I mean, so basically between the years of like 89 and 98, by the time I did get clean, it was a struggle. I mean, I, you know, I, we did, we did, I did a couple of Keith records. We did some couple of winos tours, but by the mid nineties, I was pretty, I was kind of bad off. Um, I was bad off in my soul. Yeah. My soul was started starting to, I was starting to go bankrupt. Right. Okay. My soul. Right. And I, I was with I was with what they call spiritually bankrupt. Yeah. Um, and I had I had a hole in my soul at that point, and all I could do was basically was, you know, do, do drugs and alcohol to, to fill that hole mostly, you know, to try to feel somewhat normal and feel, um, feel like I fit in somewhere on this earth. You know, I, I felt pretty, pretty like the odd man out often. So during those nineties to those mid nineties, there was a band that I played with that really my brothers, they helped me out a lot. The spin doctors helped me out a great deal. That's because right. toward the end of my of my drinking and, and drugging days, I was playing with the spin doctors, and I ended up getting clean ninety eight August of ninety eight, um, and it was right before my thirty ninth birthday, I believe. Yeah, I was turning thirty nine August of, of ninety eight, yeah. and when I got when I finished doing doing my, uh, which was my sixth time going to rehab treatment yeah I, during this whole time i had gone to treatment like five or yeah. the last one was the sixth sixth one and when i got out of there and i started doing stuff that people told me to do you know with 12-step programs and whatnot all of that stuff i did i did that stuff i did it rigorously you know i i, I ate slept uh i i lived that yeah. Is what I did, and then I gradually spin doctors did a tour. My first tour was with the spin doctors when I was clean, yeah. and we we did a European tour, and we went to Portugal and places like that where I felt like so out of place, yeah, because people did nothing but drink in places like in Portugal yeah. and Spain yeah. and wherever else we went. Everybody's drinking and uh, and I was like trying to get newly clean soul. And I got, I made it, I made it through those times. Were the other guys in the band? So, did you have any sober? Uh, no, nah, those band? guys were not sober. But those guys were not like I was. Right. They were normal guys. Right. Aaron Comas and those guys were normal cats. Yeah. That could take a drink and or leave it. Take it or yeah. leave. It. Yeah, yeah. Unlike, unlike myself. Was there? I, I wasn't gonna leave it. I was gonna take it. Right. Right. <laughs> 
And why do you, do you have any like reason why in your mind that the sixth time is the one that that took? Was there a moment that you remember where you're like, this time it's it's different, and this time I got you know what what kind of there was a moment there was a moment yeah I didn't know that maybe I could do it, and um it wasn't you know it wasn't any like big burning bush type of thing or anything yeah. like that. It was just, I had a moment. I had a moment where I knew that, wow, you know what? You could possibly do this. Yeah. You could possibly do this. And, um, I mean, yeah, it took, it was hard. It was hard. And it, I had to set short term goals for myself. Like I, yeah. there were certain places I couldn't really go. Right. early on right. like i was scared to go to new york early yeah. on yeah i was scared to go to new orleans early on you know what yeah. i'm saying so when i when i was when i knew i was going to go to new york or to new orleans i had to prepare and make sure i was ready i had to have things planned out i had to have a structured kind of deal where okay i knew i was going to have to go to some hit some meetings and things like that yeah. and find some other people, make sure I made contact with other people that were, you know, clean and sober and whatnot, that, that kind of thing. So that was basically it. I mean, I remember my first uh, times when I was spending like a uh, uh, extended, extended um, periods of time in New York. They were putting me up in Jersey city. I would stay in Jersey yeah. city. Yeah, because it was just far enough away. Now I probably if hey if I would have had the urge and all of that shit, I probably know Jersey City. I would have found some shit somewhere, but I didn't. I didn't pursue it. Yeah, I stayed at this this I stayed at this um double tree hotel that was directly across the river where you could see from my I would I would get this this room high up, up at the top of the building and I could see the skyline of New York. It looked beautiful from across that river, right in Jersey City. Since then, they've built they they built other buildings. That hotel you, it doesn't have that view like it yeah. did back then. Yeah. But I could see New York. I could see the city, but I wasn't going. I wasn't going out there out there by myself. You know. Yeah. I wasn't going and exploring any of that any of that shit. Right. But it was right by the PATH train station. I could walk to the PATH PATH train and catch the PATH train to New York, get off of with Christopher Street or somewhere like that. And then I was I was in the city and I would do whatever I had to do in the city. And then I would go my ass back to Jersey City. Yeah. And I'd go stay at that Double Tree Hotel. And my that's my early days of spending time in New York. Right. And um clean and sober. It was hard. Yeah. But there was there was something else that was that happened to be right near the PATH train. And this is I know this is an anonymous the things that, you know, my programs and, you know, 12 steps up is not, but there was a place called Perry street and there was a meeting that I used to go to all the time on yeah. Perry street. Okay. And it was a few blocks from the fucking path train station. And that helped me. The right, first right. year or so doing that stuff, I had to do stuff like that. And I had to be in contact with people, like-minded people, basically. So, it, so if eventually I was able to go anywhere in the world. I was and able to go it, anywhere. Is that still a struggle for you? Is that thought? Is that thought ever cross your mind? Nah, you know what? Unfortunately, no. Nah, the thought never crosses my mind at all. 
Because um, I know that personally, you know, we've been together because you've been sober ever since I've known you. And we have and 20, I mean, 21 coming up on 22 20, years, 20 something. And years. That's a long time. And we've done coming up on 22 years. Done, class. That's crazy. And we've done hundreds, if not thousands of gigs together, at least hundreds. Right. And there's been <laughs> I can't. Yeah. Every single one of yeah. those gigs, there's alcohol everywhere. There's weed everywhere. There's whatever else people are doing behind closed doors. And uh yeah, I can. I, 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 the 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 level of of uh, commitment that you have is definitely been something that I admire. You know, because it must be hard. <laughs> no, it's some crazy that, shit. No, no. You know what I mean? And yeah. I generally yeah. have a pretty good head on my shoulders. But you know me, like you know, I, I hang, I do what I do, whatever. Um, I, I'm. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've seen you a couple times with some funny looks on your face. Yeah. I'm, like, oh, I'm not saying I'm an like, angel oh. by any means. No, no, no. But, uh, no, no. You, you're very level. You're very level-headed. Yeah, I mean, everyone compared to a lot of people I, that we know. Not I believe pick me. and choose my my battles, you know, or, or my moments, I should say. But, Absolutely. Uh, I'm fortunate, and I got to give a shout out to Alan and Neil from Soul Live because um, we saw a lot of crazy shit. And they, talk about level-headed. Those guys. I mean, they don't really party, but every once in a while, you know, we'd have a good time and we would do this, that, and the other. But they were to be in a band with two solid cats like that has always been, mm-hmm. you know, something that I'm thankful for. Yeah. But um, Evans, Evans brothers, Evans yeah. brothers. Yeah. Good yeah, cats. man. Good now dude. you know what? It's, it's so crazy <clears throat> being around some of that, some of the scene, especially, especially during jazz fest. Yeah, jazz in fest. New Orleans. Those late night shows, yeah. all that stuff, and those festivals and the jam crews and all of yeah, that stuff. There's crazy people on <laughs> that partake in all of that shit. Yeah, and yeah. it's you know what? It's 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 become pretty amusing to me to some degree yeah, seeing yeah. from this side, yeah. watching people behave the way they behave. Yeah, yeah. when they partake in certain things and um. I'm on the outside looking in. Man. I'm on the outside looking and saying, "Oh, yeah. all right, how y'all doing?" I, all right, I do and I'm going about my business. Um, <laughs> I do know that being the the sober one in a room full of drunk people can be pretty funny. I mean, it's it's cool that you can be amused by it because I know it can be really annoying. Uh, but sometimes it could be very <laughs> aggravating. It could be very aggravating and annoying, especially. Yeah. No, I've seen some. There's been some some instances where. You know, I ain't gonna say no names. Yeah, yeah. I ain't gonna say it was a certain band, a certain band, a certain group I play with sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen some things that's some funny stuff. Yeah, definitely. With some interactions between band members. Yeah. When it's kind of alcohol induced. Oh, and I've, seen, I've seen quite a bit of substances. that. I've seen quite a bit of that. It's uh, some funny shit, but sometimes it's very aggravating when you, you know, see, when you watch somebody act a certain way yeah. and then you see them transform into a little bit belligerent a little bit okay yeah. so, uh, you know but you oh, know yeah. what but it's part it's part of being a musician yeah. is you know you can't you know I, I'm not one to ever want to judge anybody to, to, to for doing what they want to do and if it ain't hurting you if you if it's not if it's not getting in the way of you playing your music and you cool with it, yeah. and it's not messing your family life up. Go on, and do it. More power to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. But for me, I know that there's no way that I could have the life that I have now 
if I was doing any of that stuff. Right. I could not do it. Right. So that's, for me, the sacrifice. It's not even, a, I'm like, wow, what I get, not what I get, the gift I get to do the things that I get to do and not have to worry about where, you know, if I'm going to show up for some shit, or if I'm going to go MIA, or if I'm going to remember what I did the night before, yeah. I don't have to worry about any of that shit. And then I get to come home, you know, and the people, people, people that are around me, the people that I'm close to, they can trust me. Yeah. You know, that's not something that I could say a long time ago. Right. right. You know, and it's been a long time, but I was crazy as fuck. Right. Back, right. You know, back in the days, I was not one to be fooled. I was not one. I'm. There's a lot of people that I see now that I know party and I've seen them. On, I've been on the outskirts and seeing some of their party-esque yeah. behavior. Yeah. And I'm saying, well, I'm glad that some bitch wasn't around when I was getting low. Could have been some trouble. There's a few people that yeah. we know. Your radar starts I'm like, to go I'm off. Glad like, oh, that, hang, that. I'm glad we didn't hang back in the days. Oh, my God. It's yeah. some trouble. Yeah, yeah. I generally but, you know, you, have had a good radar about that, and like, am, am, am able to evacuate, you know, when needed. But I know what you're saying. That I, I, I know that that look. You see that look? You're like, uh oh, uh oh, here it comes. <laughs> yeah, no, and then, you know, and you know, you got to know when you, you know when it's time for me to go. Yeah. I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna back on out of this, and I'm gonna get on out of here. I'm going home, or you know, if you because you, I'm, I'm, you, I'm, mo, I'm. I mean, 90, 90, 98% of the time in these situations, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm there because I have to, I have to be there playing right. a gig or whatever. Right. You know what I'm saying? So if, if I'm done with playing and then the hang gets a little too heavy for me, yeah. I'm like, oh, I got to go. Yeah, you know, right. if people start, people start smoking, smoking pot. You know, I mean, which, hey, if you, if you smoke, I got nothing against it at all. I have nothing against it. I just don't do, it. Yeah. and I, I don't. I prefer, and if I if it's in a closed in area and yeah. that smoke yeah, starts getting, I got to go. Yeah. I I got to go. I don't want to go home and start eating all the Oreos and you know <laughs> go home and eat chocolate chip cookies. And shit. Yeah, yeah. I have a bad enough problem with that kind of stuff anyway. I don't want to have like some subliminal munchies because yeah. I've got a contact high yeah. hanging out in the dressing room with certain people. I ain't gonna say no names again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, nah, man. You know, it's you know, and if anybody, if anybody who who is just just a shout out, anybody who is listening or watching this this uh, uh, interaction with me and my man Crash, if you are having problems or you have or you have some uncomfortable uh, times, in uh, you know what, it can be done. It can be done. There is fun to be had, to be had playing music, and you can do it without mind-altering substances. Yeah. I have found that to be the case, and I have found for myself that, like, I've appreciated music so much more when I do have the human and the, the clear-minded element instilled in me and I'm walking around with it and I get nervous before a gig and I don't have the crutch of having a drink to knock that little nervousness off, you know, because I, I did that a lot of times as well. 
I don't have that luxury. So I got to feel that little butterfly in my stomach when I'm going to go play some quiet piano gig or something. Or, you know, certain situations make you tend to want to, um, you know, take the edge off a little bit. I don't have that luxury. And you know what? But I find I found beauty in that nervousness yeah. and in that that human feeling that just feeling uncomfortable, you know, being somewhat comfortable, being uncomfortable. I mean, I think that's part of the whole experience. And that also can feed the performance. You know what I mean? Like, because yeah. I, I speaking to that right there, that is something that for me has definitely been a struggle. Like, I, I don't think I've ever been to the point where I'm I, I, like my life is in danger from drugs and alcohol, but I've definitely been on the, at the point. <laughs> well, actually, that might not be true. But, uh, but, no. you know, <laughs> but it, what it does happen is I get into a pattern where when I start to feel nervous or like about to go on stage, I need a drink or I need to do something. And, Have a little sip. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? But then that'll turn into a couple more and da 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 da. Um, and that's an interesting thing that you talk about where like feeling that nervousness can be good for you and actually important and make you understand that, that this is, you are supposed to feel a certain way when you're performing, you know what I mean? It's not yeah. just supposed yeah. to be in every way. Like it's not supposed to be a mundane thing. You're supposed to feel the energy around you and, and be a part of that. Right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're, you're a professional, so you're supposed to be prepared yes. and knowing what you're doing. Yeah. So, obviously, the more prepared you are, you might not feel as nervous. Right. But there's a something, something with me, there's a certain certain element, a certain, a certain atmosphere where I might get a little bit nervous. Yeah, yeah. And it's a beautiful thing. Once you're in it and you're playing, and you're like, oh, man, you know, you feel that human element yeah. and it's just that that natural I, I look at it as a natural high and the feeling that i feel like after after the gig after we played yeah and i i there was in the past i didn't know what to do with that energy like right. that after gig energy where you're kind of hype and you don't and you almost want to calm down or you want to what do you want to do or you want to keep that adrenaline going and that's yeah. how i used to look at it where I wanted to keep doing substances to yeah. either curb it a little bit, calm it, or to keep it going. Yeah. And to maybe to f- try to feel that adrenaline even more. Yeah, but yeah. I find now that the, just a natural feeling uh, that I get like after playing, I'm yeah. usually kind of hyped, so I can't go directly to sleep yeah. You know, right after playing. But I can sit for a little while and maybe I'll maybe reflect a little bit and say, critique myself that was a good game or blah 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 and I immediately start thinking of what could have been better or what I could do better next time and yeah. stuff like that yeah. and and then at some point you look around the dressing room and you start enjoying your surroundings and then maybe you might have a laugh or two at yeah. some of these other fucked up but yeah well, that, it's, it's, it's an experience, man. It's an experience that I, that I love. I love to get to do it. Definitely, definitely. Um, well, part of, uh, you know, you have obviously always had family around you in your musical endeavors, or a lot of those. And obviously, 
the band that you've now been in. I just realized you guys have been a band for 17 years, Dumpster Funk. Demo. I mean, you guys, you guys well, formed in 2003. I don't know if that you guys didn't really start touring till we didn't after start that. touring till 06, maybe okay. 06, 07. But we did. We, the first time we played a gig was 03. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was kind of a. I I thought maybe it was a one off. I thought maybe it was a one off. Let's do this thing. And, and I know you have had did. a long. You had a very long. As we spoke of earlier, you and Nick Daniels. And I know Tony, yeah. you've been playing with Tony forever too, right? Yeah, we will. We, we, yeah, well, I, I actually, the first time I really hung with Tony was, um, it was sometime in the 80s. And it was, I was at home, I was, I was subbing. The, there was, a, there was a, a version of the meters that consisted of Zig, Leo, Tony Hall and David Torkanowski. Oh wow, with Torque. Yes, Crazy. yes, that was a version of the Meters, and Talk couldn't do a gig, and I've subbed for Talk, right. playing with the Meters, and Tony was playing bass. George, George wasn't with him at this time. Oh, okay. George had went on a hiatus from the Meters for a minute. Oh wow, okay. and it was Z, and it was Leo, called, Tony, it was, and Talk, and it was called the Meters. It was called the Meters. Okay. Yes, it was called the Meters, and so I subbed for Talk. Okay. And that was my first time really hanging with Tony. Now, I right. knew Tony a little bit in passing, and I had heard of Tony. Right. Like, when we were coming up, um, it, it's, uh, I would say teenagers, 16, 17, 18 years old, we had heard of Thibodeau Tony. Right. He was somewhat legendary. Yeah. As a kid, he was legendary. As a teenager, we had heard, oh, George Porter's little cousin, Thibodeau yeah. Tony. Yeah. Is a bad mom. He can play yeah. his ass off. Yeah. He can play guitar. He can play bass. Yeah. He can possibly. He could even play drums. And yeah. legend has it. Legend has it that Tony subbed for Zig before. Yeah. That Tony subbed for Leo before. Yeah. And Tony subbed for George before playing with the Meters. Right. I have. Yeah, I don't think days. I've ever played. I've never uh, heard Tony play drums. Actually, right. I may have to. Yeah, when he didn't, he probably lost a step because he yeah. don't play them anymore. But that yeah. he first started playing drums. Wow, crazy! That was his first instrument, from what I understand. Yeah, and then Ian, of course, being uh, Art's son, your cousin. Um, yeah, and he was he was young when you guys started but was has he was he part of he's been a part of dumpster funk since the beginning right was he was he yes, on that yes, first he was. Gig, right he was and then he um he also was um he he he's been sitting in with with with, with his dad with the funky me right right with george rt and i think russell was on drums and uh, brian stokes was on guitar that was a version right. of the meters known as the funky meters. Right. And actually, Ian would always sit in with them. And, he and Ian became, became the guitarist. He, he, he yeah. was the guitar player for a couple of years or so. He was the guitar player. With and the during that yeah. time, in fact, because of Dumpster Funk gigs being booked, I actually subbed for him on the funky meters on a few times. Like I yeah. played in LA with them and yeah. in yeah. Jersey, maybe a couple other times. But, um, Right, and, right. and and uh, obviously through the those years, 
I've, you know, sat in with you guys, you know, so many times and done tours and whatnot. And um, <laughs> what, what was the, uh, like, what, I know you guys did the gig in 2003. What sparked, like, that becoming kind of the, the main thing? Did you guys all kind of make a, make a decision to collectively? You know, it was... This? Something, something to do with something. I, I would, I would, I would uh, have to go with the fact that myself, Nick, and Tony, we had, we had, we got something that a lot of people like. We could sing together pretty good. Yeah, yep. and all three of us can sing on our own. But when we sing together, and when we trade off verses and stuff like that, yeah. it's something special. Yeah, and that's something. There's some some elements of the funk music and soul music that we came up on the same. We love liked all the same stuff. Yep. And we heard that music played on the radio in the early seventies, late sixties, early seventies. My favorite period of music is the early seventies. Yep. yep. Seventy two, seventy three, seventy four, seventy five. That's my favorite period. Yeah. Around that time, and now you know what? Sixty nine. 69, 70, 71, 72, 73, yeah, 74, era, 75. Man. I would say yeah. that. Because that was when the Jackson 5 came out with 69. And then James Brown's Sex Machine was like 70. Thank you for letting me be myself was 70. Yeah. Right? Can yeah. you imagine that? Um, oh, man. Um, yes. Yeah, so obviously Sly and then Stevie from like 70 no, to Stevie 75. No, uh, Stevie, was was, Stevie was crushing. Yeah. With all of those, all those records, yeah. and the, and then and then out of all of that, uh, then Paul and the Funkadelic, all of that yeah, stuff, yeah, and yeah. all that different stuff. The thing about it is, me, Tony, myself, and Nick and Nick Daniels, we we could do stuff together, and with this, the unspoken stuff, like we could play off of each other, unspoken, like without saying a word, and yeah. know exactly where to go where with what and then having Ian who knows like between Ian and Ian and Tony and I'm going to tell you this Ian and Tony see guitar guitar playing those two together yeah now if Tony and Ian was one guy they would be the closest thing them two together are the closest thing to the kind of old meters funk stuff that anybody could ever play. Them two. Yep. Yep. Ian, he's aunt's son. Tony, because he grew up going to George, riding his bike to George Porter's house when he was goddamn 15 years old. Yep. You know, <laughs> that kind of, he soaked up that stuff when he was a teenager. Yeah. And so that's what made it special with us is that we understand a certain aspect of that music. Yeah. Unlike anybody else like, right. we kind of know that stuff about as good as you could know it yeah. other than being the guys that made that music and i think other than being art ziggs leo and george me tony and ian and nick yeah. know the i know the essence of that stuff about as good as anybody i know that when i when i hear you guys link up vocally and, and instrumentally there's a certain amount of like detail where you guys can not only play off of each other perfectly, but when you sing, like the inflections are the same, like, you know, where each other's going to go. And, and it's interesting to hear you explain that because it's actually, 
not it's historical it's in the blood it's it's many many levels to to why that blend is so perfect you know yeah now you know i mean we i i definitely feel fortunate that that i get to be in a group with them dudes and we get to sing the stuff that we that we do and you know i'm really happy like right now it's it's funny funny thing is this time that we got that we we're dealing with right now with right. the pandemic I, I and was, all this stuff yeah gonna... we're, we're we're finishing we're finishing mixing mixing a record we've been we've been working on a, on a record piece piecemeal right for like the last four three four years right and we're finally actually actually gonna put a full record out a dumpster funk record we haven't put out a record since 20 shit five six years or something yeah like yeah we haven't put out a record since we put out a record called dirty word that yeah. was in what 2013 or yeah, 20 I think, it's, I think it's 2013 that was the last full record that we put out yeah and we actually been working on some music that's been in the can that we've been fooling around with right, now right and it's so cool and a lot some of it's these, these songs where we're singing off of each other yeah and things of that nature I mean it's, it's a joy to hear some and there's not stuff. many bands with that many lead singers like any one of you guys is a lead singer but I love that you guys trade I mean obviously Sly traditionally but I can't no, think of any yeah. other like bands right now that not only have the funk the way that you guys do but also that each each dude can can lead a song, but then the trading is what makes the yeah. dynamic work. Um, yeah, yeah, nice. Also, you know, I think that the the timing and the injustice that's happening in the world, like there's there's a void here where like we need bands like Dumpster Funk and um, to be making music right now and addressing these things, and not that yeah, every yeah. not that everything song has to be political. But I know that in the past yeah. you guys have spoken on that, and you know I think that now's the time, man. It really, you know, for 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 more. Well, music. you know what's well, you know what's funny, and you mentioned that we had we put out a single like literally almost four years ago. It yeah. was almost four years ago. It came out. It came out um, three uh, under four years ago. It came out uh, I think around February. Of 2017. Yeah, and Shorty's on. And there, we, right? there's a song called a "Song Called Justice." Yep. Yes. Well, guess what? We have a we have a we have a we have a version now of that same song that that Charlie Tuna wrote some verses to. Ah, okay. He wrote he wrote wrote a wrote a, a dope verse that we're gonna we we we're doing a remix of it um, that we're gonna include in this this new package of music. Cool, um, cool. funny thing was when I listened to those words of that song, the only it's like, and I, I saw a song, you know, what I saw this video that ta that Tash did. Yeah, did you see yeah. that thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. I helped, Just, I was uh, in the studio, yeah. I, I, I was like kind of in the studio on that. I, I like co produced that album. Okay, that's that good. Part did he play all he played all that stuff himself? Uh, it's Chris St. Hilaire, it was a London Soul song. From the album. Oh, that was Chris. That's from the it's album. It's Chris on drums. Yeah, it's, and on synth bass. All that synth bass. That's Chris. Stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's him. Yeah. Oh my god. Dude, so we, that we oh, recorded. So that's, oh I mean, my I, I, ca god. I came in out of those sessions, but there was like twenty songs recorded that none of that has seen the light of day. 
Um, so oh, I, no, I've been listening the, to that stuff ever since. Um, what's the name drive. of the song? What's the name of that? Something, 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 something ain't right. right something ain't right. I something ain't right. That song, dude. Man. I just Crazy. heard it like the other dude, day. Ian I should send you the rest me. of that stuff because the whole album is fire. There's like two albums. That is so bad. That's yeah. sense shit. It's so bad. Yeah, that's yeah. Chris. Oh, that's Chris Saint Hilaire. That's bad. That's Weedy right. on percussion. Wow. So it's okay, Weedy. Yeah. All right. So yeah. you know what's funny is when I saw the the video. And some of the some of the images they had, yeah. it's very similar to Justice. No, I remember the video style. you guys had, yeah. And yeah, I yeah. can't believe the same. I mean, I can't believe it though because the same shit that was going on when I was a kid is kind yeah. of going on now. I know in a well, different time, in a different era, for a different mean, for some of some of the same reasons, yeah. but different dynamic. But uh, it, some of it uh, right now, the way to see people doing what they're doing in the protesting, and to see the rainbow of people out there now yeah. is what makes me hopeful and makes me um, happy about that, you know? Definitely. Yeah, and I hope that out of this time period, we get a lot of music and, and art because the combination of, yeah. of quarantine and, you know, with all yeah. of the protests and all the things that are going on, you know, we, we uh, a lot of artists have a lot to say and a lot to comment on. So hopefully the silver lining yeah. is that we're going to get yeah. some, some good music and some good art out of this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to think so. Yeah. Well, um, I look forward to hearing the new dumpster funk music. I'm definitely going to play the, that, that justice song at the end of the, at the end of the episode. And, uh, I appreciate you being on the show, man. Thank you, Kras. Yeah. Always, man. Yeah. Indiana Kras. Isaiah said that y'all Indiana Kras. Yeah. I said, what up? On the next episode, we'll, we'll talk. We'll tell the hey, Indiana Kras story. Bro, you, can't, you can't tell that story. That's, oh, my God. Oh, we'll that, was we'll, funniest, that was one of the funniest days of my life. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. Boy, yeah. We'll tell it one day. Yeah. Boy, yeah. that was so funny. Yeah. That's good oh, stuff. my Lord. No, we'll, we'll tell yeah. it. We'll tell it. I'll be in the outtakes. Yeah. But uh, yeah. once again, thanks for being on the show, man. And I hope Thank that we you, get man. to thanks, actually bro. play music together in person sooner or later, so, my too. man. Hey, you right, man. <laughs> All right, thanks, All right, bro. Thanks Appreciate for having it, me on, man. man. Yeah, All man. Right, we'll you, talk bro. soon. I'd like to thank Ivan Neville for being on the show. You can check him out on Instagram at Ivan Neville at Dumpster Funk to find his band Dumpster Funk. Right about now, I'd like to play a song that they put out back in 2017, but it couldn't be more relevant than right now. This one is called Justice.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email krazplus1 at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next time.